You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double Eleven. On today's episode, we have the long-awaited UFC 257 McGregor versus Poirier 2 preview, predictions, and analysis. Also, in the co-main event of the evening, another bout in the lightweight division in the unofficial lightweight tournament, you have top-ranked contender Dan the Hangman Hooker versus former Bellator lightweight champion multiple-time lightweight champion, making his UFC debut after so many years with the organization known as Bellator. That is Iron Michael Chandler. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, guys. So like we said, UFC 257 preview predictions and analysis. The rematch, the long-awaited rematch between now highly touted former interim lightweight champion, Dustin the Diamond Poirier, and the return of the notorious Conor McGregor after just over a year out of the octagon with one fight in 2020. He wanted to make 2020 his return season. That was going to be his season, Uh, and he was going to fight multiple times. Then the coronavirus pandemic happened, and everything else happened, and and this fight fell through, this fight fell through. Then he was going to fight Diego frickin' Sanchez, you know, just to give him that little rub. And uh, that didn't happen. So McGregor comes back now, and he looks the most focused, ready, and complete that we've ever seen him in the in his entirety in the entirety of his career. Um, probably the most reserved Conor McGregor, the most calm Conor McGregor, and uh, I think that will be demonstrated heavily in the main event. And uh, Dustin Poirier, like I said, former interim lightweight champion, coming off a win in a war against Dan the Hangman Hooker, who competes in the co-main event of the evening, as we already stated. Um, two fights have fallen through on the card. First up, Atman Azaitar has been cut from the UFC via cutting off his bracelets and uh, giving him giving them to a friend or a bystander and having them uh, use the wristbands to get through security, get into the fighter hotel, and drop off a bag, apparently, after sneaking around the hotel, got caught. Now he is cut from the UFC. Such a stupid move from Atman Azaitar to do when you're on a Conor McGregor card. There's no bigger card you could be on than a Conor McGregor card or a Khabib card. You're on the card, and, you know, you ruin your career. And, you know, we don't know what the bystander was dropping off in the hotel, but needless to say, that fight is canceled. He was supposed to be fighting Matt Frivola. And then Nasrat Hakparast has... Pulled, uh, pulled out of his fight, or Ben pulled from his fight against Armin Sarukian. And uh, that was due to the fact that he didn't make weight and he fell ill. So now they're taking the two fighters who didn't fall out of the fight. So this Matt the Steamroller for Vola versus Armin Sarukian. They are going to fight in the lightweight division on the main card, I believe. It might be a prelim, but correct me if I'm wrong, but a really, really solid fight here. And... Uh, it should be a barn burner from start to finish, so I'm excited to see that. And then, like I said, we already talked about the main and the co-main event. You've got a really solid fight in the women's strawweight division between Marina Rodriguez and the highly touted prospect Amanda Hivas. Hivas comes into the fight a minus 310 favorite over a plus 260 Marina Rodriguez. Obviously, you know, I saw she went uh, down to a plus 250. 
Still, um, I don't think that Marina Rodriguez is a bad bet if you were to bet on this fight, but I wouldn't put it in a parlay. I would bet it straight up. And then on the prelims, we've got a fight in the middleweight division between the number 14-ranked Brad Tavares, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 17 victories and 7 defeats, going up against shoeface Antonio Carlos Jr., who has a record of 11 victories, 4 defeats, and 1 no contest. Um, yeah, this, this card isn't... Everybody's going to watch this card because of Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. So a lot of the times they'll throw you fights on the card that are lower level fights. They're they're ranked contenders, but they're not somebody that people are going to want to like really shell out a lot of money to see. But this card, they gave you a really, really solid card. And I know some people, some people have been saying that it really wasn't a solid card. They could have put more on here. We did have a fight fall through. Um, Hurricane Shane Burgos was supposed to fight Hakeem Dawadu on this card. That obviously didn't go through as planned, and it fell through. So that is a little bit um, that's a little bit d- disappointing because you know I wanted to see that fight, but as long as they get the chance to rebook that fight, I don't see that being a huge issue. And I think they will rebook Burgos versus Dawadu. If not, give Burgos um, the winner of Ryan Hall versus Dan Ige. I think an Ige versus Burgos or a Burgos versus Hall. I think that's a great fight. So I sure I'm sure they'll go in one of those two directions when it comes to booking the next fight for these guys if they don't if they decide to not stick with Burgos versus Dawadu, but part of me thinks that they will cuz that is a phenomenal fight for that division. Um yeah, let's start with the prelims. Let's just get it let's just get it popping, get it started. Um first up in the middleweight division, the number 14 ranked Brad Tavares who holds a record of 17 victories and 7 defeats. Going up against shoeface Antonio Carlos Jr., who holds a record of 11 victories, 4 defeats, and 1 no contest. Really, really solid fight here. This was supposed to take place on a card earlier in the year. I want to say it was maybe UFC 256 or a fight night. No, it was definitely a fight night. I'm not exactly sure which one. I could probably look it up really quick. Let's see. Okay, um, 2021. No, it doesn't list it as something that was supposed to take place. But I know this fight was supposed to take place on another card, but besides the point, this is a good fight between top-ranked, uh, top-15 fighters. I could have sworn Antonio Carlos Jr. was ranked at some point. Um, he obviously is not as of now. I believe in his last fight, he's coming off a loss to Uriah Hall. And Uriah Hall's on a good win streak. He's beaten Christoph Jotko. He's beaten Antonio Carlos Jr. He's beaten Anderson Silva. And now he is looking to face Chris Weidman at UFC 258 in a rematch because they did fight each other on the lower level circuit for the middleweight championship, I believe, in another organization. And Weidman got the victory via a TKO, if I remember correctly. But that rematch should play out a little bit differently now that Uriah Hall is with Safe Sayud at uh, Fortis MMA. He has made a lot of strides in his career and a lot of strides in his game, especially with his confidence in uh, in the fight or in his in, with his confidence in contests, I should say. So this is a good fight. You know, you look at Brad Tavares and he is primarily a striker. He does have wrestling, but he mainly uses his wrestling to defend takedowns or 
you know, get the underhooks in and turn with the over-under position up against the cage and work from in close. Um, against Israel Adesanya, he looked good. You know, he took a lot of shots. He didn't really land too many strikes on Adesanya and pretty much got destroyed, but he stayed in the fight and he stayed calm. He didn't ever um, he didn't ever stop coming forward, even though he got beat and was getting hit with elbows and and question mark kicks and front kicks and you know spinning back kicks and one twos and knees up the middle in the clinch and elbows off the break. He never stopped moving. He always stuck it stuck it through and kept moving forward. He's got a great gas tank. He's got a lot of power. There is video of him sparring with Uriah Hall on uh, the internet. I'm pretty sure you could find that on YouTube, um, uh, a clip from a little while ago. So this is a great fight, and uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. is primarily a grappler. He does have some decent pop in his shots on the feet, but his main goal is to push forward, pressure you, either get you to overcommit on a punch, overextend on a punch, I should say, shoot underneath, get a takedown, or work with a single leg, transition to the body lock, take your back, get the hooks in, drag you to the ground, and just work his phenomenal Brazilian jiu-jitsu game. I think a lot against a lot of guys, you saw like against Uriah Hall, he was able to push him up against the cage, um, work to the back, get the body triangle, and hold that position. Uriah Hall was able to defend, but any time that the fight got to the ground, um, Antonio Carlos Jr. was in control. He's very good at controlling you, chaining takedown attempts together, whether it's single, turn the corner, transition to a head on the outside, double, change the, change the angle, um, go to single legs, go to body locks, and try to work trips. Um, try to get control in the clinch and then grab the body triangle by hopping on your back and dragging you to the ground and working in half guard, trying to land shots and just control you. He's very good with control and chaining takedown attempts together. So if you stuff one takedown, he can move from the net to the next, to the next, to the next. And uh, the thing about Brad Tavares is though, you look at the guys he's fought. Yoel Romero, phenomenal, outstanding wrestler. Yes, he got out wrestled by him, but he lost via decision, I believe. Um, knocked out, knockout win over Christoph Jotko. He's fought Israel Adesanya, went to decision with Adesanya. He's fought Edmund Shabazi, and he lost that fight via knockout. You know, didn't look so good in his last fight. But Brad Tavares is still a very, very solid competitor in that 185-pound division. And I do think he is top 10 worthy. I don't think he gets to top 5, but I do think he can make it to top 10. And I think that Antonio Carlos Jr., I think this plays out a little bit similar to the Uriah Hall in Antonio Carlos Jr. fight, except for the fact that I think Brad Tavares ends up finishing shoe face. Um, yeah, I think he ends up getting a knockout in the third round. I think it's a TKO. I think that it's going to be a close first round because Antonio Carlos Jr. is going to look to shoot takedowns constantly, um, chain takedown attempts together, go with over-under positions in the clinch, push him against the cage, make him carry all his weight, and just continue to do that throughout the fight. But if he does end up hopping on the back of Brad Tavares, whether it be a missed punch, shoot a double leg, turn the corner, take the back, get the body lock and jump the, the body triangle and get the hooks in. If he gets that, I think his legs will tire out like they did in the in the hall fight. I think Tavares is clean on the feet. He's got a good one too. And he's very patient and very calm um, is Brad Tavares. He doesn't tend to overextend on his punches. He doesn't let firefights get to him. He's always keeping his hands high. He's always slipping and trying to return on the counter. He's always trying to land good kicks. He's got a good knee to right hand. He'll land the knee up the middle to the right hand. Um, he did that against Jotko. That hurt him pretty bad. Good jab, really good just ability to see punches. He's got good eyes. And I think that's going to be a big weapon against um, Carlos Jr. I think the, the distance control, the patience, 
the power and the overall crisper striking and the crisper ability to land shots on the feet is going to get him the win. I do think he gets taken down, but he's got good scrambles. He's got good ability to get up on the hip, use the wizard, get back up to his feet, turn off the cage and get back to the center. I think we see a lot of that from Brad Tavares. And I think uh, he gets a finish in the third round. I think the accumulation of shots on the feet, I think he fakes a shot, comes in, lands a left hook and a straight right, drops Antonio Carlos Jr. and gets him a gets himself a third round TKO. So my pick is Brad Tavares to defeat Antonio Carlos Jr. via a third round TKO. All right, up next, we move to the main card, and the first fight on the main card is about between top 10-ranked strawweight contenders in that women's 115-pound division. You've got the number 8-ranked Marina Rodriguez, who comes into this fight a heavy, heavy underdog at a plus 260, who, is, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 12 victories, 1 defeat, and 2 no contests. Going up against the number 10-ranked minus 310 favorite, Amanda Hivas, the, uh, the prospect Huge, huge prospect in the women's strawweight division. A lot of people very high on her and her ability. Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, black belt, very good grappling ability. Good shots on the feet. She's not afraid to get into striking exchanges on the feet. And her professional mixed martial arts record is 10 victories and 1 defeat. So overall, combined record of 22 victories, 2 defeats, and 2 draws. Um, Some of the best girls in that 115-pound division. Now, I think a lot of people are going to look at Marina Rodriguez's last fight against Carla Esparza and think like, oh my God, you know, Carla kept taking her down. She would she would shoot the double, change the angle, take her down. She would use the single legs um, after Marina Rodriguez would stuff it and get the hips down in a sprawl. She would turn the corner, cut the angle, um, use her legs to wrap around um, Marina's legs and turn the corner and get the takedown. A lot of leg laces, a lot of shot on shot on shot attempts. It wasn't one takedown attempt and then a break. It was one takedown attempt chain to a next. Maybe you shoot a head on the inside single, transition to head on the outside, transition to a running running the pipe double leg. Um, if that doesn't work, you go to the body lock, try to pull them down and sit them back into your guard. If not, you can trip out the feet and move them to your left or your right, depending on how you want to use your clinch trips. And uh, But the thing about Marina Rodriguez is she's good off of her back. And even when she does get taken down, and she's not very easy to get taken down. I mean, to get taken down by such a decorated wrestler as Carla Esparza, who probably has the best wrestling at 115 pounds. You know, that's not a necessarily a bad thing at all. And uh, I think that, you know, I think that this fight is a case of people are very high on Rivas. And I do think they should be. You know, she is very good. She's got that armbar victory over Paige Van Zant, where she used the wizard to defend the takedown, stepped over the face with the right leg, got the armbar, and got the finish. Um, and she's very good with uh, throws from the clinch. Very, very good with judo tosses and hip tosses. If Marina Rodriguez tries to get in close and shoot a takedown, she will use that overhook, um, kick out with that leg, with the lead leg, toss her, hip toss her over, and try to get on top position from the from the exchanges with the trips and the throws. Her, her best takedowns are her judo tosses, whether it's a head and arm or a traditional judo toss. I mean, she can pretty much use your momentum against you at any time and get you to the ground. If she gets Marina Rodriguez to the ground, I do think she does have the ability to submit her. And I do think that her top control, if she does get into mount is going to be a problem for Rodriguez. But the thing about Rodriguez is even when she gets taken down, she's got good defense on the ground. You know, she can 
stay in the full guard. She can land vicious elbows from her back. And I think that is one weapon that's going to be used very well against Tivas is landing elbows from her back. I think she's going to cut her with those elbows. And uh, when she sees her own blood, how does Amanda Hivas react? We don't really know. You know, she's new to the game. So is Marina Rodriguez. You know, she hasn't had much, many more fights than, uh, you know, Amanda Hivas. They're pretty close, as we explained with the records. But I do believe that Marina Rodriguez is way, way, way better on the feet. Now, Amanda Hivas can strike. She loves to use that inside low kick, left low kick to direct the opponent into the straight right hand. She used that a lot against, um, she used it against Carla Esparza. Or no, she used it against uh, Paige Van Zandt, and she used it against, who was her other fight that she just fought? I just watched it. Hold on, Amanda. up against Randa Marco. She used it, got the decision, beat Paige Van Zant. Uh, Mackenzie Dern, she was using a lot of that inside low kick, directing her into the right hand. But the thing about Mackenzie Dern and what may have made Hivas's striking look so good is Mackenzie Dern isn't a striker. She's primarily a grappler. Yes, she does have a good overhand right. She does have a decent jab, but she's not a striker. And a lot of her punches are looping. They're wide shots. With Marina Rodriguez, she loves to use her kicking game, whether it's lead body kicks, rear body kicks, head kicks, um, knees from in close in the clinch. As you step in, she'll land that knee, you know, drive it into your body. She's good from the clinch with knees and elbows and punches, and her punches are very clean and very crisp. Yes, she does get hit, but everybody does. She's very good at keeping her con her composure and going two, three, body kick, one, two, three, low kick, one, two, three, uppercut, cross. I mean, she'll mix up her combinations and she'll always get an angle. Sometimes she'll move in a straight line, but she's good with the jab. She's good at constantly pressuring the opponent. And I don't think Hivas has fought anybody to the caliber of a Marina Rodriguez. I don't. I don't think that she's fought anybody at that level. I think that Marina Rodriguez would beat Paige Van Zandt. I think that Paige Van Zandt, or I think that Carla Esparza could beat... Um, Amanda Hivas if they did fight. So it's one of those things where like, is this another Roxanne Mataferi and Macy Barber callback and callback to that fight where I think Macy Barber was like a huge favorite, maybe like a minus four or 500 and she got beat. Now she did tear her ACL, I believe in that fight and got injured. So that aided into the, the game plan with the grappling and the, and the top control against uh, Macy Barber and uh, what led to Roxanne getting the decision. But I still think that Marina's pressure, her forward pressure, her kicks, her clean striking and her ability to, to defend wide shots against from opponents is going to be the key to getting her a victory here. Yes, she did get taken down over and over and over again against Carla Esparza, but she landed a lot of good shots. She won a round, could have won the fight. You know, it was a very close fight, but the takedown attempts were getting to uh, to Marina Rodriguez, and she did end up, you know, staying on her back a little longer as the fight went on. But the thing with this fight is, I don't think that Amanda Hivas is as good of a wrestler as Carla Esparza. She is a better jujitsu artist. She's a better grappler, not a better wrestler. So if she shoots a takedown and then transitions to a to a submission attempt, maybe she shoots and uses that to take the back, get the hooks in, and try to go for a rear naked choke. Maybe she shoots. Then maybe she fakes a shot, gets Marina to, to lower her level, gets a front headlock, pulls it down, goes for a guillotine, a darser, an anaconda. I could see those positions. 
In scrambles, I do think that Amanda Hivas is probably better. But if she does get on top, the elbows from the back of from Marina Rodriguez, the kicking game, the beautiful combinations and the sharpness of her striking, I think get her the, the decision win here. I'm going with a big underdog pick. Um, sometimes it play it pays off for me. Sometimes it doesn't. But I am going to pick Marina Rodriguez to defeat the prospect Amanda Hivas via a unanimous decision. I think her striking, her range control, and the pressure is going to get to Amanda Hivas and uh, hand her her first defeat in the UFC. So Marina Rodriguez to defeat Amanda Hivas via a unanimous decision. All right, guys, the next fight on the card is going to be a bout in the lightweight division. It was formerly supposed to be Matt, the steamroller Provola versus Atman Azaitar. Um, Nasrat Hakparas fell out of his fight with Armin Sarukian. So, and then Izatar obviously cut from the UFC after a big mix-up with cutting his wristband off and giving it to um, an outsider to get into the building to drop off a bag, and it all got messed up. So now Atman Azaitar is no longer a UFC fighter. Big, big fuck up from Atman Azaitar. So now we've got a good fight again in the lightweight division. Matt, the steamroller for Vola, who comes into this fight with a record of eight victories, one defeat and one draw going up against Armin Sarukian, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 15 victories and two defeats. Now, when you look at the, the fight, the style of Matt, the steamroller for Vola, he is a pressure fighter. He is a gritty fighter. If he's going to win against Armin Sarukian, he's going to want to get into clinch exchanges. He's going to want to get in close. He's going to want to land some punches and shoot takedowns and chain takedown attempts together. Try to get top position. You know, he's a gritty fighter. He'll throw wide shots, a one-two step through into southpaw and land the straight left hand overhands. A lot of head movement. He will use head movement in close, but a lot of the times it's like we said on the previous predictions with another fighter, he'll use head movement outside of the pocket. I believe we were talking about Matt Schnell. He'll use head movement outside of the pocket, but then when punches come at him, he tends to keep his head a little bit stationary. But he will roll punches, land a shot, roll underneath, land a hook, roll underneath, constantly moving left and right, faking into range, stepping forward. But his striking is not the best. And against a guy like Armin Sadukian, who's 15-2 and two overall as a professional, I think this is a fight where Armin Sadukian dominates. I think that Nasrat Hakparast was a way tougher fight for Armin. I still think he beat not he would be he would have beat Nasrat just because of how good this Armin Sadukian is. I could see this guy being a champion at 155 or a top contender. And in one of the st- the most stacked divisions in the UFC and in all of, you know, mixed martial arts, that's saying a lot. But you look at his fight against Davi Hamos who's known for his grappling, his heavy power punches, his submission game. He wasn't able to do anything against Armin. You look at the fight with Islam Mahachev and Armin Sarukian. Now, Islam did defeat Armin, but the grappling exchanges were insane. And the only way that, you know, that Islam was able to get takedowns was when he would have him in like an over-under clinch and he would trip that outside leg out and pull... Um, Armin towards the direction of that trip, and then he wound up in mount. So it's a lot of trips that end up getting Armin off of his feet. If you shoot traditional takedowns, you're not going to be able to get him. And Armin Sadukian is the only man to take down Islam Mahachev in the UFC. So 
And Armin is so good on the feet. Don't think that just because he has great scrambling ability, good ability to control opponents, good ability to shoot takedowns and duck underneath, use duck unders and shoot and turn the corner as an opponent comes in um, to range to try to pressure him. He's got great striking, and he never traditionally moves in a straight line. Now, when you look at his training partner, I mean, he trains alongside um, Piotr Jan, who's obviously the current UFC bantamweight champion. I believe his record's 16-1 and one overall in professional MMA. They both train out of Tiger Muay Thai, and Armin Sadukian, I believe, won the 2018 Tiger Muay Thai tryouts, got a free year of training and nutrition and everything in Muay Thai, and Tiger or in Thailand, and Tiger Muay Thai is the best Muay Thai gym, one of the best, if not the best, Muay Thai gym in the world, and some of the hardest, most grueling tryouts to get through. So we know this guy has grit. He's got phenomenal striking, a good ability to pop the jab, the one-two, the one-two lead high kick. He loves going two to the lead left high kick, um, good rear body kicks, good fakes and feints, good knees, good ability to stop takedowns, shoot takedowns on attempts when opponents come in, great one-twos and constantly moving and angling off the cage. He's got really good spinning back kicks. He'll go one-two, step through, spinning back kick to the body, come back, land a one-two on the retraction. He's so, so, so good and so defensively aware, always moving, never backing up in a, tr in a straight line, always moving left and right, lead body kick, straight into lead high kick, low kicks, fake the low kick, one, two, fake the low kick, one, two, three, constantly landing, hook to high kick, get the outside foot, fake and faint, always moving, popping the jab, using his takedowns, good scrambles. Good ability to get under hooks and turn opponents up against the cage in double unders or over under position. He's great. And I think Matt Favola is a good fighter. He's gritty. But even if he tries to make this a gritty fight, I see Armin knocking him out or finishing him via submission. I think Armin Sarukian, like I said, is one of the best guys you have in that 155 pound division and definitely one of the most bright prospects to watch. I think it's Armin Sarukian, Rafael Fiziev, and Brad Riddell. Those are your top prospects to watch at 155 pounds. And I think that Frivola's good, but I don't think he's nearly as good. I don't think he's good enough in the wrestling to take down Armin Sadukian. I don't think he's good enough on the feet to last with Sadukian. I think he gets picked apart. I think he gets taken down multiple times. And I think he gets finished um, with the crisp right hand left high kicks and the one twos in the range management. So I'm going with Armin Sadukian to defeat Matt the Steamroller Frivola via a We'll go a second round knockout. I think he styles on him. I think he dominates the fight and shows just how good he is and how good of a prospect he can be and that he can be a contender at 155 pounds. All right, up next in the women's flyweight division, about between the number six ranked Jessica Evil Eye, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 15 victories and eight defeats, going up against the number Seven-ranked, minus-125 favorite, Joanne Jojo Calderwood, who holds a professional mixed martial arts record of 14 victories and four defeats. Now, I'm going to be the first to say we're not going to spend a lot of time on this fight. There's not much to talk about. Jessica I is a girl who wins off of grit, determination, pressure, and cardio. And could that work against Joanne Calderwood? Yes. Do I think it's going to? Absolutely not. Um, you know... Jessica, I, and I don't want to throw disrespect at her because she is a pro. She, she, you know, I do respect her. She fought for the title, so she can get it done. But she's one of the least talented strikers in that division. She's got a decent jab. Her best strike is probably her jab. 
But if you throw a jab, you have to be at range. And being at range against a great Muay Thai striker and a specialist like Joanne Calderwood can be a recipe for disaster. Now, there are a lot of fights I thought Joanne Calderwood would have won, and she lost via decision. Um, the Jennifer Maya fight was a dangerous fight, and she lost that via submission. So she does have the ability to uh, get submitted. She's not the best on the ground. She does have submissions of her own on her record. Um, I believe she's gotten arm bars and possibly a triangle choke. I could be wrong. I know she's gotten a few submissions on her record and in the UFC. Um, Jessica I, like I said, pressure fighter moving forward. She likes to get into a brawl. She's a brawler. And it, this is a battle of a brawler versus a technician. Now, sometimes the brawler can get past the kicking game and then the crisp striking of the opponent. But against Joanne Calderwood, I don't think that Jessica I is going to be able to get past the range, the jab, the teeps, the knees, the long kicks, the one-twos, the angles. I don't think she's going to be able to get past any of that. I think maybe there will be a point where jo uh, Joanne or JoJo slips up and maybe uh, Jessica I can get into a scramble and get into an exchange in that manner. But overall, I don't see it happening. And I think Joanne Calderwood wins this fight pretty one-sidedly and pretty, you know, pretty easily, if I do say so myself. I think Joanne Calderwood defeats Jessica IV, unanimous decision. I think it's 30-27. Maybe jo uh, Jessica I sneaks around in there, maybe by pressuring her up against the cage. I think that is a position where Jessica I can do well. But uh, overall, I think Joanne Calderwood striking her jab, her teeps, her knees, her work from the clinch, her elbows, um, her, her strikes from range and her angles and her ability to use good defense on the feet is going to be too much for Jessica I. I winds up too much. She lowers her hands and keeps her chin straight up in the air. She does move her head sometimes like a traditional boxer would, but I think against Joanne Calderwood, the fakes, the feints, the clinch work, the knees, and the kicks are going to be too much for her to get past. And I think Joanne Calderwood wins this fight via unanimous decision. I'll go 30-27 um, times three. And she cashes in as a slight favorite. So, so far, we've picked a huge underdog. Um, I don't know the odds for Armin Sanuki and Mavrovola, but I would venture to say Armin is a heavy favorite. And we picked the favorite with uh, Joanne Calderwood at a minus 125. All right, up next in the co-main event of the evening in the lightweight division, you have the number six ranked minus 125 favorite coming off a beautiful fight against, um, or I wouldn't say a beautiful fight, but a fight of the year contender against Dustin the Diamond Poirier, that is Dan the Hangman Hooker. He is going up against former multiple-time Bellator lightweight champion, having wins over the likes of Eddie Alvarez, Smooth Benson Henderson, fights against Patricio Pitbull, um, a knockout victory over Patricio, I believe. Or it might have been Patricky, but I think I think it was Patricky, actually, a knockout victory over Patricky Pitbull, and uh, just, uh, just multiple good wins in his career. And that is Iron Michael Chandler making his UFC debut. When you look at records overall, Dan Hooker has 20 victories and 9 defeats. And Iron Michael Chandler has a record of 21 victories and 5 defeats. Chandler, obviously, multiple-time world champion. Standout wrestler. Um, I think a Division I All-American. And uh, we can actually look that up. Let's see what Michael Chandler's wrestling credentials are. We go NCAA wrestling. Um, Michael Chandler University. He was a three-time NCAA qualifier. 
And uh, let's see. Let's see. Wrestling career on a high note. NCAA qualifier. He had a record of 68 and 32 overall with 15 wins against league grapplers. He was ranked as high. He's ranked as high as seventh in the nation by Win Magazine. This is old because this is still when he was at Mizzou, I believe. But um, he is a very, very decorated, I believe, a Division One All-American. Let's see if we can pull it up on his Instagram or his uh, Wikipedia if it'll come up. Here we go. I want to go to jump to NCAA record. Here we go. Let's see. Um, NCAA championship matches. He lost against Gregor Gillespie. So Gregor Gillespie beat Michael Chandler um, nine, what is it, two to ten or something like that. Um, so that's somebody he's lost to who's in the UFC. So that's a big uh, feather in the cap of Gregor Gillespie, who's a phenomenal wrestler. But um, he's got victories over Sidney Outlaw, Benson Henderson, Brent Primus. He lost to Brent Primus via calf kicks. He uh, got, got kicked in the calf. His foot constantly kept getting, his ankle kept getting, uh, kept rolling, kept getting, you know, injured because, you know, when you get hit in that peroneal nerve on the calf, it can deaden your leg. It happened against Henry Cejudo, happened against Michael Chandler, against Brent Primus. It's happened against multiple, multiple fighters, and that calf kick is becoming a huge weapon. Um, he's got a win over Patricky. Patricio Pitbull, and then he lost to Patricio via TKO. Um, he went to lower his level with the jab and get his head off the center line. Patricio came over the top with the right hand and knocked him out. Um, Dan the Hangman Hooker, like I said, he's been there, done that. He's got multiple knockouts with a knee up the middle, which I think can play a huge factor in this fight, and that's something we'll talk about. Um, he had a, a phenomenal war against Dustin Poirier. He has a decision victory over Paul Felder. He's got a win over Ally Quinta. He's got wins over Mark Jacasey, Jim Miller, Ross Pearson. He's fought some of the best of the best, and so has Michael Chandler. This is one of the best fights to make, and probably the toughest matchup to give somebody in their debut for Iron Michael Chandler. Whenever somebody comes into the UFC from a previous organization, Dana White always tends to give them a really high-level guy. With just with uh, Eddie Alvarez, he got Donald Cerrone in his first fight. Then I believe it was Anthony Pettis, then Gilbert Melendez, then Eddie Alvarez, and or then Rafael Dos Anjos, you know, over and over and over again. I believe Melendez and then Pettis. Um, you know, with Justin Gaethje, he got Michael Johnson, Eddie Alvarez, Dustin Poirier. Um, then it tapered off a little bit. He got James Vick, then Cerrone, then Ferguson, then Khabib. So everybody who comes into the UFC who's at a high level and a world champion, whether it's World Series of Fighting, Bellator, um, et cetera, et cetera, they always come into the UFC and get a tough fight. And this is probably one of the toughest fights that he could get against a guy like Dan Hooker, who's a long, rangy, technical kickboxer. And uh, they both fight out of an orthodox stance. Chandler will switch to southpaw, as will Dan Hooker. Hooker likes to go left hook, left hook, then he'll go right hand, switch to southpaw, then come over the top with the left hook. That's how he knocked out um, James Vick by using that switch stance hook. Um, he primarily fights out of orthodox, though, doesn't switch very often. Michael Chandler is a, is a phenomenal standout wrestler. He's got good suplexes. If he gets your back, he's going to take you for a ride. He did it against Benson Henderson. He's got a good head on the inside single, good fakes to take down attempts. 
The face to takedown attempts can also set up your striking. Striking can set up your grappling. Wrestling and grappling can set up your striking. Fake the right hand, shoot ahead on the inside, double. Fake the right hand, shoot ahead on the outside, double. Or head on the inside, single, and then a head on the outside, double leg, and run the pipe. Um, you would only shoot a double leg with a head on the outside. So I don't know why I said that, but there's differences in... Sorry about that. There's differences in the way you set up your takedown attempts. Now, the thing with Michael Chandler is when he throws his right hand, he is probably one of the fastest fighters in all of mixed martial arts. His one-two is so fast. When he when he used it against Patricio, um, he faked the jab, faked the jab, and then Patricio countered with the uppercut, and boom, he countered him with the one-two and landed on an angle as Patricio was throwing the uppercut and knocked him out cold. Against Sidney Outlaw, he was going one-two, a long two to the body, a long right hand to the body, moving out and moving out, constantly changing range, and then boom, he countered, he hit him with that right hand as uh, Sidney Outlaw was kind of turned towards him on a little bit of an angle. Against Benson Henderson, in the first fight, it went to decision. Some people thought Benson Henderson won that fight, but Michael Chandler's wrestling, his top control, um, his striking on the feet, really good left body kick. He's got a good right body kick and a good switch southpaw left body kick. Um, against Benson Henderson in the rematch, he used the right body kick to switch into southpaw and get Benson to, to move into that straight left hand. So he used the right body kick, disguised the stance switch with it, and then as um, Henderson tried to counter. He switched, boom, landed that straight left hand on the button, boom, landed it, dropped him. And then as he was on the ground, he went to get up. He landed a good uppercut to the top of the head of Benson and knocked him out. Um, he's got wins over Dave Rickles, uh, wins over Eddie Alvarez via, you know, just pressure and moving forward and taking the back and getting a submission. I believe Eddie Alvarez is up in the fights against Michael Chandler. I think he won two to one. Let's see. Up. 29 and 6. Uh, let's see what his with the Michael Chandler fight, what his record was. Um okay, so he lost to Michael Chandler via submission, then he came back and beat Michael Chandler via decision. So it's only been two fights. Lost Michael Chandler, beat Michael Chandler. Yeah, so they're one and one. Okay, so they didn't ever get that trilogy bout. So one and one, um, each fighter has a win. Um, but Michael Chandler has not fought Cans, but he has not fought, I think, he has fought just as good. No, no. I don't think it's just as good competition as Dustin Poirier. I mean, Poirier fought Eddie Alvarez first time. Um it was a disqualification, you know, but Eddie was pushing forward and getting the pressure on Dustin and taking him down. And then with Dan Hooker, obviously, um, Dustin Poirier went to decision, but he won the fight pretty one-handedly, except that pretty single-handedly, you know, one-sided, except for the end of the second round where Poirier was overextending with those wide shots and Hooker was countering with hooks, but he landed a straight down the middle and then went to hooks, then knees up the middle in the clinch. Um, but either way, you know, Michael Chandler is not a slouch. And with Dan Hooker, it's always about controlling the range. He's a very tall guy. He has a huge reach advantage in this fight, I believe. Let's see. Um, pull it up. 
UFC uh, homepage. Let's see, events. Sorry, guys, here we go. Fight card. So if you look at the Hooker versus Chandler fight, let's see. So Dan Hooker has a 75-inch reach to a 71-and-a-half-inch reach for Michael Chandler. So that is a 3-and-a-half-inch reach advantage for Dan Hooker, and he is going to use that. He's going to keep you on the outside of his jab. He's going to use a lot of fakes and feints. That's one thing Michael Chandler hasn't really fought too many times is fakes and feints. He likes to feint. He'll keep his hands a little bit in front of his face, a little bit further extended. He'll fake the jab, then one, two, or he'll fake the right hand, blah, blah, blah. He uses fakes, but fakes and feints are never really used against him. And Dan Hooker is a master of feints, whether it's a hip feint with dragging his rear foot across and opening up his hips to fake the round kick and then coming up the middle with the teep kick, whether it's um, faking to get that outside foot and go hook cross, um, faking the kick to then drive the knee up the middle or faking the knee to then go to a body kick or a teep. Um, he uses a lot of fakes and feints on the feet. Um, they're both orthodox. Chandler will switch to southpaw, and the switch stance combinations were actually a big problem for Dan Hooker against Dustin Poirier, where he was in southpaw, uh, used that left hand to disguise the stance switch and come over the top with the overhand right because Dan Hooker is so long and so rangy that he doesn't keep his hands up. He keeps his hands a little bit at chest level and the lead hand extended, and he just backs up and moves around. He'll jab, hook, um, jab, hook, touch, try to get a knee, um, always trying to get the outside foot, fake the right hand, move to the outside, try to land a body kick. Um, with Michael Chandler, he's very good with that body with body kicks. He doesn't throw them like a traditional roundhouse where you open up the hips, turn your hip over, and drive into the body, kind of like a traditional low kick. With him, he kicks on an upward angle and just drives it into the body. It makes it quicker, and it's harder to defend. It's kind of like what a calf kick is to your foot, where you kick up on the calf. He does that. He'll jab, boom, kick up to the body. Jab, boom, kick up to the body. Jab, boom, kick up to the body. Switch southpaw, boom, come over, come down the middle with that straight left. Um, I think that Michael Chandler does have the ability to knock out Dan Hooker. He's got very, very solid one-twos. Um, he will go 2-1, which I think can trick up Dan Hooker. A lot of people will go 1-2, but they'll never go 2-1. So I think he'll go 1-2, 2-1, and then boom, 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 throw like a three or four punch combo. But his main bread and butter on the feet are his body shots. He's got a very good body shot up against the cage. You know, he'll keep you up against the cage, touch, 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 boom, rip the body, come up with the left hook. He is a very, very talented fighter, and his wrestling ability can get him some good takedowns. Um, I think that's that's one thing Dan Hooker has not dealt with too much in his career. I mean, he fought um, Paul Felder. He fought Ally Quinta, who was a wrestler. Um, Dustin Poirier was able to take him down. Ally Quinta was not able to get any takedowns. Um, Dan Hooker was able to reach around the butt and uh, control the thigh and then sit out sit out on the hip and turn towards the opponent to defend the takedown and get up to top position. A lot, really, really solid takedown defense. But he's never fought a wrestler to the likes and the caliber of Iron Michael Chandler. Chandler can get suplexes. He can get double legs. He can get single legs. He can transition from double to single to body lock to hip throw to, uh, to suplexes. I mean, if he is able to get takedown, 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 I do think he can win a decision, and I do think he can knock out Dan Hooker because he keeps his hands down low and just backs up 
particularly backs up in a straight line when combinations are coming at him. Um, he will use head movement. He does have good slips off the center line sometimes, but he will get caught, you know, a lot of the time because he doesn't you keep his hands up high and he doesn't really move his head that much. He just moves back in a straight line against the one-two of Chandler, I think he can get caught by that, but the range and the distance management and how good Hooker is at keeping that range throughout a fight is going to be a problem. And the one thing I notice is that when Michael Chandler throws that jab to the body, he dips his head really low and kind of doesn't look at the opponent. And when he throws that straight to the body, he overextends on the straight, extends it a full extension and uh, keeps his, his level really low and keeps his head down a little bit. And I think Dan Hooker, the best weapon he's got is that knee up the middle. That the calf kicks are going to be a problem because Michael Chandler was getting hit by calf kicks a lot against Benson Henderson, and he got stopped via calf kicks by Brent Primus. I know they said foot injury, but it was due to the calf kicks and the low kicks of um, Brent Primus. So I think the low kicks, the calf kicks, the jab, the fakes and feints are going to freeze up Michael Chandler, get him to throw punches when he doesn't want to. I think he's going to change levels for a takedown or a, or a jab to the body and get caught with that knee up the middle by Dan Hooker. He's so good, so sharp at setting that up. And I think Dan Hooker gets the victory via a third round TKO via that knee up the middle and uh, dropping him and getting a knockout. It's a very tough fight for Michael Chandler. I love this fight. Either guy can win. It is the closest, one of the closest fights on the card, but I do believe that Chandler, um, overextends a little too much, lowers his level without using a lot of defense when he lowers that level, and he's going to get caught with that knee up the middle. So my pick is Dan the Hangman Hooker to defeat Michael Chandler via a third-round knockout. All right, guys, now we move to the main event of the evening in the lightweight division, a rematch six years in the making between the returning notorious Conor McGregor coming off of a first round knockout victory via head kick and punches over Donald Cowboy Cerrone going up against the former interim lightweight champion currently ranked the number one contender in the division that is Dustin the Diamond Poirier. Um, you guys know what's going on with this fight. Um, first first meeting, Conor got Dustin really emotional and uh, was able to pick him apart. Uh, Connor did get hit by a few low kicks on the inside and outside of his leg, and then uh, he got swept off of his feet a little bit with the low kick and almost got hit with a left hand. But um, you know the hook kick of Connor McGregor to circle Eddie or to circle Dustin towards that cage, and then you know timing it, do do boom one one two or one three two. I'm hitting him on the back of the ear, grazing the ear, dropping him, getting the hammer fist, and getting the first round KO. Dustin's made a lot of improvements. I think physical improvements and like overall game of Dustin is pretty much the same. Um, he is very improved. His mentality has, you know, grown a lot since their last fight. He's he's been through the wars. He's stuck it out. He can get through it, you know, paid in full, blood, sweat, and tears. You know, that's Dustin's thing, paid in full. And, you know, you got to kill me to stop me. And I want to get in a war. He's like, I want, I'm going to knock Connor out. Like, I want, like, that's what I want to do. I want to knock him out. I want to do it. You know, and, and Connor has already knocked him out. So what's the difference when you rematch a guy and you look in his eyes and you know, like, this man knocked me out in the first round. I'm a more improved fighter. 
I, I'm a completely different fighter than I was back then, but you know, he still knocked me out and that that's going to play a big factor in Dustin's head. I think he's motivated to come back. I think he's motivated to try and get this win back. I think that that's without a question. I think he's prepared. I, I definitely do. I don't think he would come into this fight unprepared. I think he's prepared. I know. I think he knows what to look out for. But another thing you got to realize is since their first fight, Dustin has fought so many more times since Connor. I mean, you know, Dustin has been so much more active since 2016. I mean, he's fought Eddie Alvarez twice. He fought Justin Gaethje, fought Max Holloway, fought Anthony Pettis, fought Khabib, fought Dan Hooker, you know, fought Jim Miller. He's fought some of the best guys. I mean, Diego uh, Diego Ferreira, and look what Diego Ferreira is doing now. I mean, Michael Johnson, he lost to Michael Johnson. And, uh, you know, he's, he's fought a lot and he's improved. You know, he's grown a lot as a fighter and grown a lot as a person. Conor McGregor, on the other hand, you know, he lost to Nate Diaz, came back, won the rematch, beat Eddie Alvarez in probably what was the best performance of his career. And I think that fight and the second Nate Diaz fight are, I think the first, the Nate Diaz loss is what made McGregor a different guy, you know, cause he had to make changes. He couldn't just rely on the left hand. He had to work on his low kicks to, uh, to fire off against Nate Diaz. He had to work on his slip counters, which is a big thing for Connor slips and pulls and uh, slip and pull counters are the biggest weapons for Connor and controlling the range. You know, he's a master of distance. Um, Dustin Poirier, he still throws wide shots. You know, he has improved. He uses his jab a lot more than he did in his early career. He's got a, a phenomenal straight left hand. He uses switch stance combinations, but a lot of people don't realize he did that against Bobby Green. At UFC 199, he threw the left step through into orthodox as he was against the Cajun, circled him right into the right hand. You know, he did it again in his early career, but he didn't do it as efficiently as he does now. You know, and I think He's going to look to set up that switch stance right hand where he double jabs with the rear left hand to disguise the step forward into orthodox and then land the um, overhand right. And I think he's going to look for that against Connor. I don't think it's going to be that successful though, and I'll explain why. Um, let's talk about the stats. When you look at the fight, both guys are equal height at 5 feet 9 inches. Um, weight obviously identical, 155 pounds. When you look at the reach, Connor McGregor has a 2 inch reach advantage over Dustin Poirier with a 74-inch reach to a 72-inch reach for the diamond. Um, leg reach, a half-inch leg reach advantage for Dustin Poirier at 40 and a half inches compared to 40 for Conor McGregor. When you break down the win percentages, wins by knockout, um, that's where Conor McGregor shines. 86% of his wins coming by way of knockout. 50% of the wins coming by way of KO for Poirier. 5% wins via submission via uh, for Conor McGregor. 23% of his wins coming by way of submission for Poirier, and then decision 27% for Poirier to 9% for McGregor. Average fight time is pretty identical, 8, eight minutes 55 seconds for the Diamond to 8 minutes and 20 seconds for the notorious Conor McGregor. And significant strikes. This is pretty interesting when you break down the stats. Um, landed per minute, uh, landed per minute, Dustin is definitely the, is a little bit more, active with landed per minute and a little bit more accurate. That's 5.59 strikes, significant strikes landed per minute for Poirier to 5.43 for Conor McGregor. So it's neck and neck in that regard. When it comes to striking defense, a significant strike defense, they're equal 49%. When it comes to strikes absorbed per minute, Dustin actually takes less shots. 
with 3.69 for Dustin Poirier to 4.4 for Conor McGregor. So that's almost a two. That's a little bit less than one. He takes about one extra strike per minute than does Dustin Poirier. And defense, Poirier edges it out briefly with a 56% significant strike defense to a 55% significant strike defense for Conor McGregor. Now, when it comes to the grappling, um, takedown averages per 15 minutes, 1.75, so almost two takedowns per 15-minute fight for Poirier, to 0.75 takedowns, a little bit less than one for the notorious one, Conor McGregor. When you look at the takedown accuracy, Conor is actually more accurate with his takedowns, but he doesn't look for takedowns that often. Um, 41% takedown accuracy for Poirier to 62% for the notorious Conor McGregor. Takedown defense neck and neck, 69% of takedowns defended by Poirier to 70% for McGregor. For submission averages, Conor McGregor doesn't have any submissions in, uh, in the UFC, and uh, Dustin Poirier has 1.32 submission attempts or submission average for a 15-minute fight. So Poirier is more active looking for submissions, whether it's jumping for a guillotine choke, although he has not been successful with that, whether it's locking up a Darce choke, or locking up a triangle armbar like he did against Max Holloway in their first fight back in the day. Um, you know, the stats don't really play pay into how how I think this fight plays out. When you look at the stats, it's pretty neck and neck. And Dustin has a lot of advantages when you look at breaking it down statistically. But when you look at the fight, what is Dustin's best weapons? His straight left hand. You know, his straight left hand, his uh, right hook, and his overhand right. Those are probably his best weapons, along with his kicking game. Now, the kicking game can be a big weapon against Conor McGregor, but you got to think both of these guys are going to stand southpaw. Now, Dustin, like I said, he will switch from southpaw to orthodox with that double left hand to step forward into southpaw, disguise the step to get the outside foot on the opposite stance opponent and come over the top with the right hand or just use that straight left to... Uh, sometimes he'll go straight left to a left hook to step forward and then go over the top with the right hand. So instead of stepping forward with the jab and just throwing the overhand right, he'll get that angle with either that check um, left hook to keep the opponent moving towards the power right hand. So he throws that check left hook to get you to direct into the overhand right as he switches stances. Um, I think that he's going to look for that against Connor. Connor, the one thing Connor hasn't faced is somebody who switches stances. Eddie Alvarez always fought out of orthodox. He will switch stance, you know, sometimes when he would throw that switch jab or he would dart with the right hand to get the outside angle. You know, Eddie does have some good footwork. Um, that was probably the guy who used the most footwork out of anybody Connor's fought, and that was probably Connor's best performance. So, you know, you can take with that what you will. When you look at Dustin Poirier's last fight, he beat Dan Hooker pretty one-sidedly, but there's one area of the fight where I think a lot of people – made discredit and it's where uh Dan Hooker hurt Dustin Poirier up against the cage. He didn't hurt him with hooks. The first punch that rocked Dustin Poirier was a straight right down the middle. It was the straight punch. So it was looping hooks and that straight is what hurt Dustin. And you know why? Because Dustin pulled Hooker in and then just wound up with overhand right, overhand left, overhand right, left hook, overhand left, overhand right. And was just winging punches and overextending and fully getting his body into it and winding up. That's what happens. And Dustin Poirier got hurt for that because Hooker was able to kind of pull back. Hook, hook, boom, that straight hurt him. He got in the clinch and landed the knee. Could have finished Dustin Poirier if 
the first round or the second round had a little bit more time on the clock, but Dustin was able to recover, come back and win the fight on the scorecards. I think four rounds to one. So Dustin can go through the fire. That's one thing that Conor McGregor has been discredited for in his career is he can go through the fire, you know, and, and Dustin Poirier has been hurt and come back. Conor McGregor has been hurt in the second Diaz fight and came back. He stuck it out against Khabib. Yes, he did get submitted in the fourth round, I believe with that uh, neck crank up against the cage. But another thing people will say is, well, Connor got destroyed by Khabib, Dustin, you know, but when you look at the performances against Khabib, I think that Connor McGregor out of Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier and Connor McGregor, I think Connor McGregor had the best performance. And a lot of people are going to say, well, Habib got hurt with that switch step overhand right by Poirier. And that's true. He did get rocked, but he was able to roll out of the way of a lot of shots and pretty much take Dustin down at will, aside from when he jumped that guillotine choke and almost submitted him. So he did put Khabib in danger. I think that Khabib was probably in more danger of getting finished against Dustin than Connor. But I think overall performance-wise, I think Connor McGregor made it a much more even fight. He was able to stop some of the takedowns. You know, Poirier didn't stop any of the takedowns at Khabib. You know, I don't believe. Maybe he stopped one or two, but in, in my head, I don't remember him stopping any takedowns. Um, Conor McGregor stopped the the original shot. He tie, he went to go with a flying knee. He stopped it, hip down. Um, Khabib grabbed the leg. He was spinning in a circle. Conor was keeping control of the body and allowing him to spin. He opened up his hips, and that's when Habib got the double leg head on the outside and shot the takedown and then pushed him up against the cage. But even when he was up against the cage, tied up in that triangle leg mount, you know, he didn't freak out. And Dustin didn't either in the in their fight, to be fair. In the beginning, he didn't. But Connor actually won a round against Khabib. I believe he won the third round with those front kicks, those stabbing front kicks to the body, stopping takedowns, controlling the range a little bit, getting back up to the feet against the cage, you know, wall walking and turning back to the center. Um, landing that straight left hand, he landed a good right uppercut. That was probably the best weapon he landed against Khabib was that lead right uppercut to usually set up the straight left hand. Now, people are going to say, well, you say Connor won't get caught by the looping punches of Dustin, but Khabib landed an overhand right. The only reason Khabib landed that overhand right is because he was so afraid of the takedown and Connor was so ready for the takedown that when he faked it and came over, Khabib or Connor dropped his hands and tried to pull back like he normally does. He'll fade back and then try to come back in on the counter. Um, and he came over the top, caught him and dropped him. But Khabib, or Connor got back up to his feet. And right when he got back up, he was trying to pull counter with that left hand. Now, they didn't land, but he did take the shot pretty well. But it did drop him. In my opinion, that was the only shot to ever drop Connor. Um, the one thing I think that Dustin is going to look for is low kicks. They're both going to be in a traditional southpaw stance. Dustin will switch to orthodox when he uses that double left hand to switch or that left hand to a left hook to come over the top with the right hand. Um, Dustin's going to have the most success trying to go with low kicks and he landed low kicks in their first fight. He landed an outside low kick on Connor, or I believe it was an inside right low kick and it swept Connor off his feet a little bit, and then he almost caught him with a punch as he was getting up, but Connor was slipping and rolling away from the shot, so it didn't do a lot of damage. But low kicks are going to be the key for um, Dustin Poirier against Connor because a lot of people don't throw leg kicks against Connor. Um, Eddie Alvarez did, and it knocked Connor off his feet, and he almost got caught with a punch on the way up by Eddie. So I think that Poirier's got good, powerful kicks to the body and the legs. I think he's going to try to land 
the outside low kick on Connor and then the inside right low kick. So left low kick is going to go to the outside of the lead leg because they're in the same stance and right low kick is going to go to the inside. So I think that is what is going to be the weapons for Poirier are the low kicks. And But the thing about Poirier is he's going to have to get through the fire against a guy like Conor McGregor. You have to get through the fire to beat Conor. Like Nate, when he won, he got pieced up in that first round and he took all the punches and he came back. Um, you know, again, in the second fight, Nate took a lot of shots, got dropped a few times, came back, won a couple rounds, but the low kicks and the overall accuracy of the combinations from Connor and the slip counters and the pull counters were what won him the fight. You saw Nate throw a jab, Connor pulled it and came over the top with the straight left. You saw him slip to the inside and come over the top with the straight left hand as, as Nate went to go with that slap right hook. He, he lands that slap, the Stockton slap, and then usually comes down the middle with the left hand. Connor slipped inside, came over the top. So slip and pull counters are the best weapons for Connor and uh, range management. And I think that Dustin is a lot more calm than he was in his early career, but nobody's more calm than McGregor during a fight. Unless he gets you hurt, then he still remains calm, but he looks for the finish. The thing about Dustin is if he gets hit, he wants to get it back immediately. You know, he wants to get in those brawls. He wants to get in your face and rough you up with uppercuts and hooks. He'll go, uh, he'll grab with that left uh, single collar tie and go uppercut hook or go hook uppercut from the same side with the right hand. Those are some of the main weapons he likes to use. And then he'll usually go to a plum and land knees. The thing is with Connor, you have to get him tired and you have to get through the fire to be able to get that close to him. Now the switch stance combinations, a lot of people are going to say, well, yeah, Connor hasn't fought people who switch stances. That's true. But when Dustin switches, he he brings his hips forward and he winds up when he lands that overhand right after he switches to orthodox. Now, it could work against Connor because they're both southpaws. So switching to orthodox will give Dustin that outside lead foot and then it'll allow him to land that shot. But what is Connor the best at? Pulling and countering back. Maintaining distance, controlling the range, and countering you when you step in like he did against Aldo. I think we could see a similar finish to the Aldo fight. Obviously not that quick. I don't think he'll finish him in 60 seconds, like he said. But I do think that he can pull back as Poirier switches stances. So he's going to go double left. When Poirier takes that step into orthodox, right as his foot touches the mat, that's when Connor's going to land that straight left hand. He's going to wait for Dustin to switch to orthodox and step. And when he takes that step, Connor's going to pull back and boom, come back in. So pull and come back in with the counter. So fade back and come back in with that straight left hand. And I think that's how Poirier gets hurt in this fight. Now wrestling advantages. I think that Poirier is going to look for takedowns, but if Khabib had a hard time taking you down and uh, controlling you, I don't think Poirier gets any takedowns. And the thing is you have to get Connor up against the cage to probably work with. That's probably your best weapon or your best opportunity for success in takedowns is getting Connor up against the cage hooks uppercut straight left double straight left right hook right uppercut and shoot a takedown if you shoot a takedown on Connor in the middle of the cage he has phenomenal takedown defense he's a phenomenal grappler grappler phenomenal defensive grappler and I don't see Poirier being able to take Connor down and to get him close to the fence you have to be able to get in close with Connor and to get close with Connor you got to get past the range management and nobody controls the range better than Connor so I think low kicks for Poirier and um, 
I think low kicks are honestly his best weapon. If you go jab for jab with Connor, you're not going to get the job done. Um, trying to shoot takedowns, maybe mix up a takedown attempt, like fake the takedown and come up with strikes. I think that might be able to stop Connor a little bit, but Connor's so relaxed and so calm. Um, I just really don't see a way that Poirier gets this done. Yes, low kicks. Um, the switch dance combinations can work because Connor hasn't really faced that in his career. However, I think when Dustin switches, he's going to um, get stuck as he takes that step into orthodox. And when he takes that step and puts that foot down, that's when Connor's going to come in. Boom, boom, boom. Land the left hander, land a combination, and hurt Poirier. And the bad thing about Poirier is when he gets hurt, um, look for Poirier if he gets hurt to look to his corner. He tends to look to his corner when he gets hurt. When he got caught with a right hand against Gaethje, he looked to his corner. Um, in a couple of his other fights, when he got hit with a big shot, he tended to look to his corner real quick. And that's Connor's going to notice that. So I think Connor comes out really calm, really relaxed. I think he tries to play the matador a little bit. And I think Poirier comes out a little relaxed too, but I think Connor's going to fake and faint. I think Poirier is going to try to come in and get in close to Connor and rough him up. And that's what you got to do, but you got to walk through the fire. And I think Poirier, when he walks through the fire, he gets burned, gets burned to a crisp and gets hit with that straight left hand. Um, I heard a clip that got released, which shouldn't have been released by Ariel Helwani, that uh, Coach Kavanaugh said that connor has been working a lot in orthodox. And one of the reasons I think that might be is to negate the switch dance combinations of Poirier. Because if you're in orthodox, um, you know, it's going to be a little bit harder to get that outside foot um, when you step into orthodox stance. If you're in an orthodox stance and you throw the double right hand, then you can, you know, step to the outside foot and uh, land the straight left down the middle if Connor does fight in orthodox. But I think that was a ploy. I don't expect Connor to fight in orthodox. The only time I see him going um, right hand dominant in orthodox is if he does like a karate style thing and switches and then switches back just to get angles, switch and switch back. Um, I think that the pulls, the pulls of Connor McGregor are going to be the biggest weapon against Poirier because Poirier does lean in on his shots. He is a phenomenal boxer with the hooks and the uppercuts, but you have to get in close to be able to do that. And I don't think he's going to be able to get in close against Connor because he's going to get hit too much. You know, Poirier likes to get into a war. You get into a war with Connor, you're going to get sniped and you're going to get knocked out. So that's what I see. I think, uh, I think we see Poirier try to go to low kicks early. I think they might work originally. But I think eventually he's just going to get caught. I think second round, he goes for that switch stance overhand right. As he takes that step down, he gets caught with a left hand, gets hurt, and gets finished. Connor plays it, gets finished. Or uh, Connor plays it off, you know, fakes and faints. Boom, boom. Left straight right hook and drops Con uh, drops Dustin Poirier for the knockout victory. So I'm going with the notorious Connor McGregor to defeat Dustin Poirier via a second round knockout. And uh, if you want to know the odds, I think Connor's a minus 310 favorite to a plus 260 for uh, Dustin Poirier. So he's a good bet, but I think Connor wins this fight every day. I think that Dustin can beat anybody at 155 unless your name is Khabib and or Connor McGregor. I think Connor is a perfect stylistic matchup for Dustin. Or I think Dustin's a perfect stylistic matchup for Connor. With wanting to get into brawls, wanting to get in close and land long combinations, I think that you have to get through the fire to get close to Connor, and it's going to be a, a disastrous night for Poirier. And I think the notorious one gets it done via a second round knockout. And uh, I mean, what else is there to talk about in this fight? I mean, we talked about the clinch, we talked about the takedowns, we talked about the switch stances, we talked about the low kicks. 
Um, Connor or Dustin is pretty good at catching kicks, so he might be able to catch the front kicks, the stabbing front kicks that Connor likes to use. Um, I don't see him going really kick heavy in this fight, though. I think he might fake a kick and then use it to set up his punches. We'll have to see. But uh, yeah, that's my prediction: Connor McGregor to defeat Dustin Poirier via second round knockout. Um, and yeah, that's it for my UFC 257 predictions, guys. I hope you enjoy this fight. By the time you listen to this, this fight will probably be a couple hours away. So thank you guys for tuning in. Um, thank you for everybody who supports the podcast and supports my YouTube. The YouTube channel name has gotten changed to Touch Em Up Podcast. So look up Touch Em Up Podcast on YouTube. I just put up a Conor McGregor full in-depth breakdown of his style, how he uses pulls and slips, how he gets that cage angle up against the cage. Um, that angle on the outside foot of the opponent to set up that straight left hand with the right hook straight left or the one three two or the three two. Um, his kicking game, how he'll use spinning kicks and, and hook kicks and jumping roundhouse kicks to close you in up against the cage, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's probably the most detailed breakdown of Conor McGregor's style and what makes him so successful on the internet. So definitely look that up under my YouTube channel, Touch Him Up Podcast. The podcast is available anywhere you can get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Stitcher, Anchor, Breaker, and many, many more. Um, thank you guys for the support. If you'd like to become a monthly supported listener um, and support the podcast monthly or make a donation, it's more than appreciated. And I'm not asking you to do it because you listening is more than enough. But um, if you did, it would definitely help us grow and maybe help us get some more audience. So thank you. Please leave a review for the podcast anywhere you can. That includes on Apple Podcasts or or anywhere you can leave a review for the podcast. Please leave a review. We have five stars on the Apple Podcast right now. So I would like to keep that up and keep getting reviews. So please, if you're listening to this, give me a review. Shout out to everybody who supported me. Shout out to everybody who's going to be watching this fight tomorrow. UFC 257, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier 2, and Michael Chandler versus, du versus Dan Hooker. Um, I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Thank you, everybody.